today on Bruce Springsteen Sings the Alphabet, Tunnel of Love. Uh, hey, everybody. Welcome to Bruce Springsteen Sings the Alphabet, Season 2, the album edition. We're uh, talking albums uh, in chronological order, the way things are supposed to be. That's right. Instead of talking about songs alphabetically, which is the premise of this podcast, I'm J.B. Clark. I'm joined, as always, by Rob Carmack. Rob, are you safe? Are you alone? Are you quarantined? Is your fever down? I am safe. I am not alone. <laughs> <laughs> I am as quarantined as a person with three children can be. So, uh, yeah, yeah. That's that's how it's uh, going. And I got to tell you, man, that when you were just saying the thing about us going through the albums chronologically, I thought like, oh, right. This is the only way we can measure time now by albums, because like time is a flat circle. All of us, all of us are living yeah, the same right. day over again. It's It's been March 13th for uh, three, four weeks now. So Yeah, yeah. this uh, everybody is like, man, April is such a long uh, decade. Yeah. But um, yeah, a friend of mine who is who is pretty publicly a very family person. And is uh, very publicly a very family person. I was talking on the phone to you the other day and, and like not with any malice or anything. Just he was like, hey, you know, hang on one second. There's kids around. Let me. And he steps into his little other room and he closes the door and he goes, do you ever wish that you could just like be in your home alone? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he was like, I mean, I would be so sad and lonely after one day, but man, I need that one day. <laughs> oh man, yeah, I, I, the, the things I would do for that one day. Yeah, it. Uh, yeah, man, I. Uh, yeah, it, it's pretty interesting. Well, I don't know about you. I've and I, I think I said this in the, one of my sermons uh, on one of my online church services, but I I feel like I'm more busy. I'm getting less relaxation done than I ever did before all this. You know, you would think like, oh, people have to stay home, so there's going to be more downtime. There is no downtime. My kids are awake all the time. They need things all the time. They're hungry constantly. And not not only that, they need my laptop and my iPad for their own stuff, for their dance classes yeah. and their, like, drum lessons in their school. And in addition to that, because everybody's so, like, hung up on needing to stay connected, which is good, like, I feel like I have, I have like, a Zoom or a Skype hangout every day with somebody. Yeah. Or do you have this right now? It's like how how am yeah. I more socially active now than I was before I was locked in my house? I don't have like an hour and a half worth of commuting, but I do have. I'm a different busy. Yeah. Uh, and I'm and like my wife, you know, works the night shift every other week, so like I'm a different busy every other week too. So um, it's kind of like I have to catch. Uh, I have to get ahead so that just in case on the week, you know, like I don't know what's gonna happen. Like the hospital, school could shut down. Like it has before, and I could be like full time dad yeah. every day, all day, instead of just like after school. Um, I know Shep woke up in the middle of the night last night crying, like screaming, crying. I want to go to school. Oh boy. <laughs> um. So it, yeah, it's wild. It's wild. It's it's uh it's interesting. And I was telling somebody the other day, like I have it really good. And as stressed out as I might be, or as weird as this might be, or as hard as it is, like for my wife to go into a medical environment, like we have it really good. Um, like we filed our taxes and did everything correctly for the first time in a long time. Plus with like some special situations we were in this year, like right before the virus hit. So like nice. we don't, we didn't lose our jobs and we had like a really good tax situation and we have a daycare that has to be open because she's a frontline medical worker. You know what I mean? Like, and we live really close to two grocery stores that deliver. So, you know, yeah, things I can't complain. If things are weird and hard, 
but I can't complain. Yeah, it's and, and for me, it's the the biggest stressor is really just the anxiety of the virus itself. You know, like I. Yeah. Like I, I can I can handle being at home. even when I'm with my kids and they're like being loud and fighting with each other and not giving me a minute. Like that's fine. That's a that that is a that is a mid level problem. The the thing that keeps me awake at night is the reality of COVID nineteen. You know, and so right. uh, so that's the that that's where my stress lives at the moment. So, but yeah, you're right. Like otherwise otherwise we also have it pretty good. Like my job can be done from here and. Um, weirdly, I never would have thought like being a pastor can be done from home, but, um, when everybody has to stay home, it can be. So yeah, that's, uh, the, the thing I haven't quite figured out yet, and this is a whole other conversation that we don't have time for, but the, the, the thing I have not figured out yet, well, a couple of things I haven't figured out yet, but the, the thing as a, like professionally that I'm, I'm still sort of like reckoning with is if somebody in my church comes down with this thing, I can't go see them. Like that's, that's part of the deal. And part of, yeah. part of my job is like being with people in the hospital when they're, you know, on the worst days of their life. And the nature of this thing is like, no, you can't do that. Like, and, uh, that's, I'm, I'm still trying to figure out. And not only that, like we had a guy in our church who, uh, who had a parent pass away, not from COVID-19, just from like life. And, um, yeah. and he, and they can't have the funeral and I can't go sit with the family. Like, that's just like, we're, we're in this yeah. weird situation now where part of my job can't be done. So anyway, all that, all that to say though, like it could be, this could be a lot harder than even than it is. And I'm, I'm not unlike yourself. I'm trying to keep perspective on that um when i when i reach peak pr- frustration yeah and, and we should say um uh this is we're recording this uh the day after two days after uh john prine died of covid19 which is you know a, mus- a musician we all love um and it's super sad it's, yeah so it's been a real sad day in the music world i know personally like i've never been a uh, like a diehard if i told you i was like a diehard john prine fan i'd be lying to you but i all of my favorite songwriters will tell you that he is their number one favorite like so i'm sort of i'm sort of like a john prine grandchild like the the songwriters that i look to for influence look to him for influence and so it's a it's a noticeable palpable loss yeah well then we we talked we talked a little bit about john prine a few weeks ago on one of our bonus episodes because we uh he he was he was on my list of uh top five acoustic albums from when we talked about the nebraska bonus album bonus episode yeah so so thankfully we have we have had a little bit of time where we were able to talk about john prine and you're right like the people that we talk about here with the like the 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 new musicians that we talk about the most like jason isbell and brandy carlisle and margo margo price all of them to a person will say that john prine is among their top two or three influences yeah and they all like actively are close to him too. those three specifically i know bruce tweeted out you know in the 70s they were both the quote-unquote supposed to be new dylans together and they both had to forge their own path on their own and that he said that john was the nicest guy he'd ever you know had the opportunity to play alongside and and sort of be a competitor with so that seems to be one of the most consistent narratives coming out of this is that like everybody who ever met him said like he was just like the one of the one of the kindest gentlest souls they ever encountered and um, and that he's gone and that he's gone because of this, like every, every new death from this virus makes me angry. Quite frankly, I, I'm having a hard time regulating yeah. my emotions around this whole thing, but it's, it, it didn't have to be this way. And, nope. um, and that it is, is infuriating and very sad. Yeah. It was a thousand people died two days ago in one day of this, like a lot of people died of other stuff too, but like a thousand people in one day because of this one thing that we ignored for a long time as a society. Yes. I'm mad about that. I'm very mad about that. Yeah. Well, speaking of things to be mad about, um, I don't know. I don't know if that's an app tra- transition. We're actually here to talk about Tunnel of Love, the album. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and this is not an angry album, but I think there's a lot of anger 
like I, I think people have a lot of very strong feelings about this this album, and we'll, and uh, not not the least of which being like the the 1987 version of the E Street Band, and uh, we'll we'll talk about we'll talk about all that. But let, let's get some basic facts out of the way. So, like JB said at the beginning, we're doing album by album. Uh, the last episode we did a box set. We had some confusion. Uh, one or two of our listeners on Slack were very confused. Like, what are you doing? You're talking about a box set. This isn't an album. And so, hey, look, it's a pandemic. <laughs> Just relax. We're gonna we're gonna do episodes. All right. So yeah. So anyway. <laughs> um. Anyway, so this album, Tunnel of Love, this is the follow up to Born in the USA a- album. I mean, really, it's the follow up to the live box set. But it's as far as new content goes, this is the first new content since Born in the USA. So this album comes out October the ninth, nineteen eighty seven, on Columbia Records, and it is it is met with not as much fanfare as Born in the USA. Like it, it, I mean, nothing ever will be again, as far as Bruce is concerned, like nothing will sell as strongly as Born in the USA. But this album, I mean, I think one of the big questions after you have a juggernaut album is like, how well will the next album do? And this album did fine. Like it, um, it, it only held the number one spot on the billboard charts for one week in 1987. It was, it was November the 7th. And that doesn't sound very strong, but if you look at the albums that it's bookended against, um, it was bookended on, it had to unseat Michael Jackson's bad. Which was his follow up from Thriller. So yeah. when when this album hits number one, it unseats Bad, which is no small feat. And then it so it holds the spot for one week, and then it's unseated the very next week by the Dirty Dancing soundtrack. So these are two like nineteen eighty seven is pro- possibly one of the biggest years ever for rock albums. And yeah. and that this album wasn't Bruce's Born in the USA. Like the, yeah, it, it was gonna get it was gonna get eclipsed by some stuff, you know. And so right. no matter no matter how strong it was. Um, so by the way, well, it was different too. It wasn't. It wasn't bad. It was just pretty different. And I think in hindsight, a lot of people really like it, but it was just so different from what he had done before that you know, it, it a lot. Of, it was met with some, I think, some confusion. Very much so. Very. And the tour also d- added to the confusion because he starts cutting right. stuff out of the, like for the Tunnel of Love Express tour, he starts cutting out like staples. Like he, he's no longer doing Rosalita. Very famously. Uh, there are a couple of other songs. He just basically is like, I'm not doing that old, like the old East Street Band stuff. I'm, I, I need to, I need to really transition into a new type of person. In fact, uh, he says there, there's a. Let me see if I can find the quote. Um, he said he he fully intended this album. He made this album fully intending to break away from the iconography of him of his own self as the born in the USA guy. And so. Um, he says he wanted to embody a non a non iconic role, so he very intentionally like dials all the stuff that made him like the born in the USA guy. He like very intentionally like dials the knobs in such a way as to turn turn all that stuff back, which I think was like you said was very confusing to a lot of fans who found him with born in the USA. Yeah, you know. So um, some other just to give you some context here, other albums that came out in 1987. Uh, the Joshua Tree by U2, like just I mean, the, some murderers row of albums. Joshua Tree by U2, Whitney by Whitney Houston, Bad by Michael Jackson, Sign of the Times by Prince, Appetite for Destruction by Guns N' Roses, Document by REM, Permanent Vacation by Aerosmith, Licensed to Ill by the Beastie Boys, The Dirty Dancing soundtrack, The La Bamba soundtrack, Please to Meet Me by The Replacements, Hysteria by Def Leppard. In My Tribe by 10,000 Maniacs, Let Me Up I've Had Enough by Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, You're Living All Over Me by Dinosaur Jr. Uh, Music for the Masses by Depeche Mode, Faith by George Michael, uh, uh, Kick by NXS, Tango in the Night by Fleetwood Mac, and Frank's Wild Years by Tom Waits. That's just a few. There are others. Um, And the number one, by the way, the number one biggest selling album, JB, you're going to love this, of 1987, was none of those albums. The number one best selling album of 1986 was Slippery When Wet by Bon Jovi, which had come out the year before. Oh, yeah. But it, it performs so strongly that it still dominates the charts in 1987. Isn't that incredible? That's right. Bon Jovi, man. It's Bon Jovi. You're right. So, um, 
So yeah, also, oh, also, by the way, the uh, 75-85 box set was number one for the first two weeks of 1987. So Bruce was already actually having a pretty strong year before this album ever came out. Yeah. Um, and like only nine albums in all of 1987, only nine different albums held the number one spot at any given point. And Bruce had two of those albums. So Bruce, Bruce had three weeks of, of those, of the 52 and two and two of the nine were Bruce Springsteen albums. So that's pretty strong already. Um, the backstory of this album is pretty much the stuff of Springsteen legend because in 19, in May of 1985, Bruce marries supermodel Julianne Phillips. And in August of 1988, three years later, Julianne files for divorce, citing irreconcilable differences. And of course, it's common knowledge that the, those irreconcilable differences were largely based on the fact that Bruce had fallen in love with Patty Scalfa, yeah. who had become a backup singer for the E Street Band during the Born in the USA tour. Um, but Bruce had actually known Patty for a long time because they, they were, uh, she was a little bit younger than him, but she was part of the music scene back on the Jersey Shore. So, um, on the cover of the album, Bruce is wearing the same suit and bolo tie that he wore at his wedding, which probably should have been a big signal to Julianne that things were probably not going well if she started listening to anything on side B of this album. Right. (laughs) You know what I mean? Um, because you could listen to the first side and be like, okay, relationships are complicated, but it's all going to be fine. And then you listen to side B and you're like, oh, we are in trouble. (laughs) This is is not a good sign here. Um, So part of the background of this album is the disintegration of Bruce's marriage, but also part of this album is the disintegration of the E Street Band. And your your boy, Gary Talent, has said that Bruce had this really kind of a cruel method. Someone is mowing their lawn in my neighborhood. This is what happens when we record in the middle of the day. Yeah. I feel like Mark Marin. I thought there was a plane <laughs> crashing into your house over and over. <laughs> yeah, sorry about that. I'm going to turn the microphone so maybe it won't pick it up as much. But it's all right. Anyway, um, man, he's like right right next to my window. <laughs> anyway, so uh, Gary Talent has said that that Bruce had a kind of a cruel method with the band on this album, and very famously, I mean, it's the E Street Band is technically credited on this album, but the E Street Band never came in to record together on any single track on this album. It, it is piecemeal, and the method is. Bruce would go into the studio and he would record all of the parts by himself, basically as a demo. Then he would call in each band member one at a time and challenge them to beat the demo. And if Bruce <laughs> liked the part better than the demo, then they stayed on the track. Otherwise, Bruce would just use his own. Uh, Bruce would just use his own part. And yeah. as a result, "Spare Parts" is the only song on the album where Gary Talent is playing. So. Uh- that's so weird. That's so weird. I get what he's doing, but it's just like it sucks to be the other guys, you know. I was gonna say, man, if I'm one of the East Street, I mean, th- these are the these aren't just day players, man. These are this is the band that made Born to Run. These guys have been road warriors together for over a decade, and all of a sudden, Bruce is like, I'm gonna do it all myself. And if you can if you can make me like your part better than my part, then maybe I'll let you be on the album with me. Yeah, I mean, it's I get what he's like. If he explained it to you, you would say that makes sense, but. It's also like it sucks. <laughs> it does. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, and and um, Brian Hyatt in his book says like he he kind of takes the devil's advocate or the Bruce Springsteen advocate approach and says like this really made the band like try harder and and work harder and be more creative. Yeah, but also it kind of undermines his confidence. Like it, it undermines like their ability to be a band. You know what I mean? Yeah. And um, yeah. Made him mad, probably. Yeah, I would Pretty think so. I mean, Gary, Gary definitely did not like it. So, especially since he got credit for one song on the entire album, as a, like there's twelve tracks, and Gary's playing on one, and all the rest of the the, the bass stuff you're hearing is Bruce. And so, yeah, and, Bruce and, does some interesting bass stuff 
too, though. So you know. Yeah. Well, I mean, in the, like, I'm, clearly he had a, he was itching to play some more bass because like later in the next sessions he starts like he basically like says, "What if I made a whole bass album? You know, yeah. fifty-seven channels yeah. and nothing on and everything else." Um, but we're not quite there yet. But but yeah, I. Like I really like this album, I, and I think this is one of the, the albums that people struggle with, and it, it, I think it's more of an acquired taste than a lot of Bruce's other stuff. And I, I think it's a good album. That bothers me. That detail of it, how he treats the E Street Band here, bothers me. I'm just, like, yeah. just to be perfectly honest, I I think Bruce in 1987 was sort of in the middle of, I mean, t- to be perfectly honest, kind of an asshole phase. And if, yeah. if you read Peter Ames Carlin's book about him, you kind of you get the sense like, yeah, he wasn't really being very kind to people in his life at that point. He was even nope. even at his um, even at the at the live shows, he was kind of like hard fisted about like like there were there were some instances where like people in the in the crowd would bring a beach ball and he would like look out and be like, get that effing beach ball out of here. Like you know, he would um, he would get really like kind of uptight about about that kind of stuff and like now we, we see bruce as being like this kind of cool laid back like fun rocker guy but man like he's got it in him to to like really ratchet up the tension and like be pretty harsh with people if he needs to be and that's that's i think that's the side of bruce that people were seeing a lot at this time april and i were talking about this the other day i think whenever you're really insecure it's easy to be really judgmental mm. and and like that like really closed off and so i think i mean i think he's going through peak insecurity i mean if you listen to this record he's very insecure that's a good point too and it is a very personal record not in like um, Nebraska, almost like he, he is not sort of bearing. It, it's more autobiographical, I think, than a lot of stuff that he's he's ever done before. Especially since he's, I mean, wearing his wedding suit on the cover. Sort of, he's signaling that this is a very personal album, right? Yeah. So yeah. So like you're saying, like maybe he's bearing a soul in, in kind of a what he feels to be a more uh, unique way, and and maybe maybe he just like you said, maybe that's bringing out a lot of his own insecurities. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well. Do you want to uh, get into the tracks? Yes, I do. And uh, I should say also, because, again, not unlike the last episode, because of the, the, the short turnaround time here, I, we're not going to have time to do a lot of audio drops. I, I may try and put in a couple, but um, probably I'm going to have to rush this out to, to get it. So um, we, we may not have. Oh, also, by the way, thanks, everybody, for being patient. We didn't have a new episode last week. Uh, we had some um, just scheduling issues, and so we're we're back. Yeah. Obviously, we, I probably should have said that eighteen minutes ago. But, right, uh, but coronavirus uh, uh, related scheduling issues. So. Yes, for sure. And no thank- one's got it. Everybody's healthy. Thanks for bearing with us. Yes. Uh, anyway, so yeah, all back to what you were saying before. Yeah, let's let's do track by track. Let's do track one. Ain't got you. Yeah. So I'm on the record as liking this less than almost all the other songs. Same. Uh, which is harsh, uh, but. There's not really much to it, you know. So, no. And what's funny is like Bruce was very defensive about this song. Like, we're not alone. Like when we start saying like we don't like this song, like Stephen Van Zant hates this song. So like we're in good yeah. company. If you're out there and like I like this song, like okay, cool. Stephen Van Zant agrees Great. with me. You know, like so. Um, but you're free to like it. I, in fact, I, I'm jealous of people who like stuff that I don't like because they get to enjoy things that I wish I enjoyed. So, um, but yeah, it's, it's stripped down. It's a, it. It is almost a commentary on Bruce's meteoric success. And Stephen Van Zandt says that the song, he says, this song caused one of the biggest fights he ever had with Bruce. Because, yeah. and, and Stephen had already left the band. So he's got no skin in the game. Like, he's 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 only in it as Bruce's friendly. So he, like, first of all, he's got no skin in the game. But also he has no reason to, like, suck up. He's got no reason to, like, no, boss, I, I kind of hear it. Like, Br- Stephen is, is the one guy in the world who, who will tell Bruce to his face, like, this is terrible. So, um, yeah. 
So he goes over to Bruce's house and Bruce plays the demo for him. And obviously, like like you said, he's burying his soul. So he's probably feeling very insecure. And, Steve, and he, he finishes it. And Stephen says, this is how Stephen tells the story. He says, what the F is this? Yeah. And then they start yelling about it. And Stephen's basically like, people don't want, and Bruce is like, this is about my life. And Stephen says, nobody cares about your life. They want you to tell them about your life or about their life. Yeah. And, and so Bruce yells, F you. And Stephen yells, F you back. And so they do that a couple more times. And then now, like decades later, it's the gift later, where the two guys are just flipping each other off from across the street over and over. Yeah, yeah, basically. And and then now, when Stephen tells the story, he's like, "This this is literally this is a quote." He says, "I think something in what I said probably resonated." <laughs> <laughs> in the middle of me yelling "f you" a bunch of times at him in his own living room, he's like, "I think he, I think he heard me. <laughs> I think I got my point across." <laughs> uh, so yeah, man, that's how two guys from Jersey. Uh, you know, express their differences. Yeah, it is. And it works. It's been working in Jersey for, you know, a couple hundred years. It has. It has. So I don't, any other thoughts on this, on this very weird opening track to this album? Nope. <laughs> nope. All right. Next well, track. Next track is tougher than the rest. Track two. Which, you know, we're getting, we're getting better. I think this is the second strongest song on the album. So we yeah, go from the weakest like song, the song to one of the strongest. The song's a great song. Yeah, I, I wish this was the opening track. I, if, if I could reprogram this whole thing, I would just take Ain't Got You, throw it in the trash, pretend like it doesn't exist, and let the album start with Tougher Than The Rest. I think this would be a very strong track one. Well, and sonically, this feels a lot like the rest of the record. Ain't Got You feels like the next record, you know? Yes, it does. And not in a good way. That is not a compliment. <laughs> right, 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 yeah. Um, so... Yeah. So yeah, and, th- and this is this has become full like now in in latter day. I, I mean, I guess it was like this on the tour also, but this this sort of immediately became a Bruce and Patty song, and yeah. and it's really great. And and it is about like the strength of of a relationship in the midst of of struggle, in the midst of um, insecurity, in the midst of a lot of things that we can't control. This is sort of like a yeah, we we both been through a lot. Um, you, you've been around baby, and I've been around too, like that kind of thing. And, and it just sort of like the reassurance of like our, our relationship can withstand a lot of difficulty. Yeah. And obviously, if you're Julianne Phillips hearing this, you're like, oh, this is very nice. And you like, maybe realize like, oh, this is this song is not about me. This song is never about me. This is about Patty. Um, right, right. So that I mean, it's it's very I, I'm, I'm sad for Julianne, but obviously, like it, it has worked out very well for Bruce and Patty. So I'm happy that they found each other. I'm just I'm, I'm sad for Julianne that. And, you know, she she's like the person who probably suffered the most as a result of like Bruce taking a little while to find Patty. You know. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, uh, but I love this song. They do this song on the Broadway show um, together, which is really really nice. Um, it is. Yeah. So. Um, yeah, and then I, I think the next track is sort of in a similar vein. All that heaven will allow. Yes, I love this song. Uh, I think this is on, this um, is one of. The, I'm a huge fan of this song. Me too. The, the, the tougher than the rest, and all that heaven will allow are two five star songs, to me. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, man. I just love the idea that like I want to spend, I want all the time with you that heaven will allow me to have. Like I want to be here for as long as I can. This is definitely the sweetest uh, song on the album. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that, that he says all that heaven will allow instead of like all that God or whatever. Like heaven is like paradise or whatever you you know like that's the sort of the definition. It's your your paradise. And yeah. So like. He's saying like, you know, yes, I know that like maybe there's paradise after this, but what I want is this, this right now. I want as much of this as I can get first, which is really, you know, it's like, it's great. Yeah. Who needs heaven when, when I have this right now? Yeah. 
Yeah. And that he sort of goes through like each verse is sort of a different phase in the relationship and he, it's still sort and and it's not the same. It's not just like a, an older version of the same thing. It's like yeah, we, we as even as we grow and even as we change, the thing that I sort of cling to is the notion that we still have each other and that this is still a gift. Even even in its most difficult days, this is still something that I I receive with a lot of gratitude. Yeah. We love that. I do too. I I I think this is this may be the sweetest song Bruce ever wrote, you know? Yeah. I, I uh, don't disagree with you. Um, yeah. It, it, I mean, really, the more time I spend thinking about it, the more I think, like, man, what a what a perfect encapsulation of what it means to feel grateful for your own life and to and to have to have a realization of, like, how, how good the thing in your life is. Yeah. So. It never really takes a turn. And, oh, to uh, spare parts. And that is signaled by an electric harmonica into uh, spare parts yeah <laughs> yeah chuck plotkin says that this is a very that like the the shift the tonal shift from all that heaven will allow into track four spare parts is deliberate it's it's deliberately brutal and right well and there's that harmonic that electric that like evil sounding electric harmonic at the beginning that like turns the corner with you you know yeah uh it's like uh it's like you know the devil stepping out of the smoke oh yeah that was there all along you just didn't know it you know it's or maybe it's a guitar i can't tell Anyway, no, it's a harmonica. Anyway, it's great. Well, and if it's you, a good, this is a good song. Yeah. How do you feel about the bass track on this song? This being Gary Talent's one and only con- contribution to the album. I mean, it's good. It's not like the the thing that's. I don't know what Bruce played that wasn't better than this. You know what I mean? Like it's this is just what you would play. This is what you would. You know, this is just sort of this is the bass part. You yeah. know, this isn't a a different thing. He doesn't make any like bold choices. Yeah. You know, it's just like this is what this song asks for. And maybe, yeah. And so I do that. You say that it makes me wonder. Like, did beat the demo? Did that make all the band members like too afraid to be creative and try something challenging? You know, maybe. Well, I mean, and like it's a very Gary based part. You know, the fact that it sort of like walks and thumps and bum, but um, bum, bum, but um, you know, like the whole way through. Like that's a very Gary sort of bass part. So. Mm. Yeah, it's it's a good song. I, I don't remember what our ratings for this song were, but um, I like it. I, I think we both gave it fours. That sounds right. Sonically, it is yeah. it is jarring. Like I, I don't I don't think I've ever listened to this album and not like in the first measure of this song been like, wait, what? Like no matter how many times I listen to it, because I'm so I, I'm so comfortable inside of all that heaven will allow that this song is it, it's on. It's almost like you're like asleep in a warm bed and somebody throws a cold cup of water on top of you. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, wow, huh? I, I, I didn't what? want that. <laughs> oh, where are we? Yeah. Which year is it? Which I realize like that's part of the narrative arc of this album. The narrative arc of this album is about like the strength in a growing relationship and then the bottom sort of falling out. And so like this is sort of the begin of, beginning of the yeah. turn. And um, God, like it, it does. Like it's almost like the first three songs are like prologue to the the fallout that will occur from here on out, you know? Yeah, so which starts happening in the next song. Yeah, which is Cautious Man. Uh, cautious Man, yeah. So, yeah, it's about a man uh, who's torn, uh, warring between two impulses, love and fear. Yeah. And uh, he doesn't know if he wants to commit or to run. He's either the guy from Hungry Heart or he's the guy from All That Heaven Will Allow, and it's hard to say which one he's going to be on any given day. Yeah. This is, and th- this is another major tonal shift. You know, like we go from very sweet to like like rockabilly spare parts then yeah. down into like almost a Nebraska outtake. Yeah. It does kind of have that Nebraska feel or a, uh, ghost of Tom Joad feel. And it's very, um, it reminds me of like all that heaven will allow is, is love, 
love and then spare parts is a fight and then cautious man is just after the fight you know yeah. it's all the stuff you're thinking about after the fight you're not mad anymore you're just like kind of scared you don't know what's going to happen next like do we really need to say is it worth the energy to stay in this yeah is this going to work yeah should i just go am i making you mad like am i am i making it worse just being here would you be better without me yeah uh so that's what caught and that's it's it's really straightforward. That's what it is. Just Bill Horton. You know, he's a cautious man. He's got tattoos on his knuckles, love and fear. Which is as far as metaphors go, that's pretty on the nose. But I mean it works. It's a yeah. it's a good song. I want some knuckle tattoos. April and I have been talking about that. She didn't want me to get them, but I really want some knuckle tattoos. <laughs> yeah. I mean, once you have knuckle tattoos, you're a guy with knuckle tattoos. <laughs> it's the thing. You know. Yeah, you don't get to no longer be a guy with no, without knuckle tattoos. It's true. So, um, so then, and it's interesting here because then you go into number six, which is walk like a man, and this is a again, it's it's it is sweet, but it's it's a little bit bittersweet because he's he's sort of reckoning with like he, it's about a guy who's about to get married, and it's it's basically a pep talk that his dad is giving him before he uh, he gets married. Yeah. And it's about taking responsibility for your own life and growing up and committing to a lifelong relationship. So it's interesting that this follows Cautious Man, right? Because it's almost like he, you got the Cautious Man. So if you're following a narrative arc, which I think Tunnel of Love wants us to do, you've got the Cautious Man. You've got the guy who's really, like he's struggling internally. Like, am I going to be the guy who runs or am I going to be the guy who stays and commits? And and he decides he's gonna he's gonna stay and he's, yeah. he's going to commit. And he's gonna try to walk like a man. He's gonna walk this like a really, man. Yeah, this is a really beautiful song. It's like. Uh, this kind of feels like the river a little bit, you know, like you got a kid, you just, you do the right thing. Yeah, it is. Uh, it is interesting that marriage in Bruce Springsteen songs is less about love and more about like responsibility, you know, with the river and with the, uh, uh, all that heaven will allow notwithstanding. Yeah. So yeah, he decides in, in spite of his, you know, trepidation, he's going to go ahead and take the plunge. He's going to get married. He's going to walk like a man. It kind of reminds me of, you've seen the movie Jerry Maguire, right? Mm, uh, I think we've talked about. It. I haven't seen that before. Oh, okay. Well, in Jerry Maguire, there's uh, there's a scene where they're getting married, and uh, you're, they're watching the wedding video later, and it cuts over to Tom Cruise as Jerry Maguire, and he looks like absolutely like miserable <laughs> at his own wedding, yeah. and you get this sort of thing of like, oh, he's doing this because he feels like he has to. Like this, he's he's not he's not getting married because he's in love. He's getting or because he. Um, wants to get married. He's getting married because he feels like he has to get married. Yeah. And like it just, and Tom Cruise does a lot of great acting in that one scene because you sort of see it all over his face and everyone can see it. And that, that's sort of what I see in this, in the song, Walk Like a Man. Like, he's decided I'm going to get married, but it's not because I want to get married. It's because that's what men do. Men get married. Yeah. You know? And so, um, and so it looks like, oh, okay, side one is over. He's wrestled internally. He's like gone from idealistic to sort of like, um, cautious, and now he's like, "Okay, we're gonna we're gonna do this. We will get married." So if you end the record on just side one, you think like maybe they'll be okay, but then you're gonna flip the vinyl. Yeah, and then you're gonna get like a little Cindy Lauper intro. Yeah, do a little aerobics. Track seven, side one of side or uh, track one of side two. Like you said, it's the title Cindy track. La- title track, Tunnel of Love. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of '80s happening musically, but you know, lyrically, it's a there's some stuff in here that's like. Whew, you know? Yeah, Bruce's songwriting here lyrically is very strong. The the metaphor of like the sort of the car- the carnival ride and the the fat man sitting on a little stool, like the all, all of the imagery surrounding like 
what what the tunnel of love represents in terms of like an actual relationship it's really good yeah the 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 lights go out and it's just the three of us yeah you me and all this stuff we're so scared of is like i'm all that's i think about that every time i'm writing a story is like when there's a scene with two people you know like what's the other what's the other character in the room what's the other you know what is it is it loss is it darkness is it sadness is it ha- is it joy like and how can i make it an actual object how can i make it three people in the room and it's like i think about this song every time i'm writing a scene and the harmonies there are great too. It's just like it's one of the best lines Bruce has ever written, ever. I agree. in his whole life. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's yeah. I, I think lyrically this, and I think we both gave this song fours. And I think, I think mm-hmm. the deduction of the fifth point for me at least is just the the overpowering of the synth. I, I just it just does not hold up. It does not hold up like uh, after eighty eight. Those you know? are yeah. And I, I think what I said in our, our episode where we talked about the song is that the the scents are load bearing. Like I don't even know what this song was, would be without without the there's Yeah, they're so definitely load bearing. This is like uh this is a, a jar of jelly. You gotta refrigerate it after it opens, you know, and it only holds up the refrigerator for so long. <laughs> yeah. It's a it's it's powerful. It it is a like if if synthesizers had a smell, it, it would be pungent. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's one of the best and dumbest things you've ever said all at once. <laughs> hey man, that's that, that's the that's the goal. We're, what we're aiming for is best and dumbest. And if yeah, if we're not there, then <laughs> that's what this is. So this is the best and dumbest thing either of us have done. This whole thing is like the most successful, dumbest thing we've ever done. <laughs> I mean, yes, <laughs> You're correct. And it's great that this is a yeah. thing that we can continue to do in quarantine. You know, that we yes, live in a time where we can still do the dumbest, most successful thing that we've ever done. I, yeah, I love it. I love it. Uh, while, while my neighbor mows his lawn. That's right. Well, it sounds like he's done. Thank God. So You're drinking a glass of tea. Yeah. Um, anyway, so yeah, this this song sort of signals like maybe th- maybe things are not as maybe things are a little bit more troubled than we thought they were when Bruce when when the guy on the other side was walking like a man. Yeah. So um, this feels very confessional. Also, by the way, like that that he talks about sort of like. The walk like a man, because I mean, really, if I'm Julianne Phillips, I'm like, oh, he didn't get married because he wanted to marry me. He got married because he thinks that's what a man is supposed to do. You know, yeah. like that's that kind of sucks. And then we go into Tunnel of Love and like, oh, OK, yeah, relationships are complicated. Sure thing. Sure thing. And then track eight is Two Faces. Yeah. This one's. uh, Yeah, this is like this is, we're, we're getting we're getting into it deeper, you know, this song almost feels redundant next to brilliant disguise which will come next um yeah because they're both basically the same idea they're they're conveying the same basic message which is two two faces have eyes like not a good you know like maybe just don't go for the rhyme (laughs) well i think we talked about in 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 the episode where we did this where he's he's like referencing a poem i can't yeah um, i forget which poem it is yeah you're right you're right Um, i agree i i don't i don't love lyrically for this song i don't love it that much I don't have it in my notes. Yeah, this is whatever, man. It's like the I like what he's shooting for, and I think he had to write it to write brilliant guys. But like, you know, we could cut this song and ain't got you, and you know, we get a much better record. I think that's right. Um, I, think, I think, yeah, I think yeah. this and ain't got you are the two weakest links. In right. The I think we rated Cautious Man low, but like you gave it two stars and I gave it three, but which is lower than this on average. But um, but I think Cautious Man, even though it's not like super strong musically or anything, it's it's a it's important to the narrative of the story. So. Oh man, that was years ago. I need to, I need to upgrade it. I I'm I think I'm a three and a half on Cautious Man now. Three and a half. I, on I've, I've, I've I've grown an appreciation on that. Uh, I have not grown an appreciation for Ain't Got You. 
Um, or Two Faces. Or I think two-faces. I think Two Faces yeah. is fine. I, th- I think Two Faces, if, if he had put it on tracks, I think we'd be sitting here talking about, oh, Two Faces is good, you know. But like because it's here between Tunnel of Love and Brilliant Disguise, I think it's sort of in the way, you know. Yeah, and like the synth organ thing, the like the little like really happy but sad minor. We I just I don't know, man. Brilliant Disguise though. This is what a song, you know. That's the next track. This. This is what he was shooting for. This this is the crown jewel of this album, in my opinion. Brilliant disguise. Yeah, man. Um, yeah, is well, that you, baby, or just a brilliant disguise? Uh, the I mean, is that me, baby, or just a brilliant disguise? That I, like, that is the the plot twist at the end, if you can call it that. The reversal where he's like the whole song is about how how he's suspicious of her that she's disingenuous, but you realize yeah. like and, and talk about insecurity, right? Like he's projecting right, his own insecurity on her. Yeah. It all comes back on him. Yeah. And like, he, he realizes it. He's saying, oh, you know what? You're probably just fine. It's probably all me, man. And that, that to me, I think that speaks a lot to Bruce's like self-awareness as a human being. That he knows like when, when he is struggling and he feels like he's not connecting with this other person, that there's always a part of him that thinks like maybe, maybe the problem isn't that they're not doing the work. Maybe the problem is that I'm not doing the work or that I didn't show up to this in the way that I probably should have in the way that this other person deserved me to, you know? And, but, but it it also is a really good, um, I think the song really models well how we do project our own insecurities on other people. Like he's so concerned that he's never like that. She is being disingenuous. And you realize like the reason he's concerned about that is because he knows he's being disingenuous. You know, yeah, I, that that shows a lot of internal self knowledge. I think that he's able to express that. And again, like if I'm Julianne Phillips, I'm like, mm, great. <laughs> I'm so glad everybody likes this song. You yeah, know? Man. Um, um, but maybe like you know, I'm glad he recognized that in himself. You can't be mad at someone you loved for figuring out. You know, maybe that y'all don't love each other. Yeah. Well, and I like also how he sort of doubles back to um, carnival imagery. You know, like how how he talks about the the gypsy, um, the gypsy swore our future was bright, but in the wee wee hours, maybe baby the gypsy lied. Um, yeah. Like the gypsy being like the person who like tells your fortune at a carnival where you might ride in the tunnel of love, and so yeah. that he uses that imagery, which also harkens back to Fourth of July Asbury Park, where they're you know they're on the boardwalk and they're, like they're sort of in that same sort of space. So it's like the same story, two different kinds of stories taking place in the same location. And noticing, like, he's no longer, like, that idealistic kid who just wants to be on the boardwalk with Sandy. He's, like, he's reckoning with his own kind of adulthood in, in ways that he didn't expect to um, yeah. 10, 15 there, years ago. There's some incredible, just, like, musical stuff going on, too. It's just, like, nobody's showing off or anything. It's just really tight. The whole song's really tight. It's great. It is. Well, it, I, I think we talked about this years ago when we did this episode. Jesse Jackson joined us on this episode when we did this so long ago. Yeah. Um, that it, if, have you ever watched the music video for this? Mm, I'm sure I have. It's interesting because he is, it, it, it's one take and he is sitting alone in a kitchen with an acoustic guitar looking like making like unbroken eye contact with the camera and it's, yeah. black, and, yeah, it's yeah. black and white. And it is, I don't know why I think it might be his best music video because it, it so truly, I think gets at what this song is trying to do. You know, I almost always think of the, that music video when I think of the song and I almost never do that with any of, of his other songs. Yeah, it's it's a it's a solid video. It's a great great song. Yeah. I love the uh, the melody too. It, it's it's kind of brave that he didn't um, try and like drag out the whole brilliant disguise in one breath. Um, that was you know like perfectly performed and like made it choppy and and sort of out of breath and um, 
It's a great song. It is so good. I'm, I'm a big fan of this song. So then we move, uh, we're, we're sort of on the downslope now. So we move to track 10, which is One Step Up. Uh, also a really great song. Uh, I gave it a four, you gave it a five. I did. I, this, this, is, this is probably the biggest rarity that I've ever seen him do live. He, he did this at, Houston, in, at a Houston show in 2014. And it was a sign request. And it was crazy good. Like, I, I never even thought about this song. And then I saw him do it live. And now this is one of my top four favorite songs on this album. I love this song. Yeah. Um, and that's Patty, by the way, doing the background vocals. Um, another signal, I think, that maybe maybe things aren't as good in, in, in the Springsteen yeah. house as, as we hope they would be. Um, so, and, and this is, this is another, like, I think Bruce really gets at, like, if you're, if you're trying to come up with some ways of, of describing like how, like why relationships are complicated side B of this album gets, does it pretty well. And this is a good version of that. Like even like we go out of brilliant disguise, we move into this song and it's like, even when we feel like we're doing well, one step up, but two steps back, like e- even in our, on our best days, we're still losing ground. Yeah. Well, yeah. and like, what's the, uh, I think the expression is actually like, is that, pro- you know, progress is in a straight line. You're usually taking two steps forward and one step back. Yeah. But th- he's saying like, yeah, you're not even doing that. Like yeah. you're taking one step forward. You're always going backwards. We're like making you're negative progress. Yeah. Yeah. You're hemorrhaging progress. Um, so, yeah, but it is beautiful. I really like the, uh, the acoustic guitar. It's, um, it's a really great song. I mean, the the one two punch of Brilliant Disguise and One Step Up is is what one of the reasons why this album is as good as it is. Yeah, it's incredible. There's not there's this acoustic and the really nice little electric guitar. Mm-hmm. That's really all there is to this song. And it's and then you know the the vocal melodies and harmonies. It's just really nice. Yeah, it is. And then we move to track eleven, which I think is probably where <clears throat> the excuse me the narrator really just pretty much hits bottom. So, yeah. Which is when you're alone. Yeah, when you're alone is is a solid song, and the not the narrator. Yeah, is I mean, he's alone. <laughs> yeah, because if you've if you've been in a relationship for long enough, and you keep taking one step up and two steps back, eventually you're gonna be alone. Like that that relationship cannot sustain. And so, when you're alone, you ain't nothing but alone. So like the relationship. Has, yeah, we've gone. You ain't from, nothing but alone. Yeah, we've gone from ain't got you to tougher than the rest to when you're alone. So we've, we've like the curve has been fully fulfilled at this point. We've gone all the way up and all the way back down. And, um, and yeah, uh, the th- thing I love about this song is like, sometimes when something is so that thing that the only way to describe it is like, you can't, the, the only definition is it right. Yeah. So the, you know, when you're alone, you ain't nothing but alone. Uh, or the, when I, with just a shirt on my back, I left and swore I'd never look back and man, I was gone, gone. When I was gone, I was gone, you know, like, it's yeah. this song is about just like it is as how bleak is it? It's bleak, you know, <laughs> it is quite bleak. Yes. <laughs> What's more like, how can you have less than zero? Like, what is more zero than zero? It's, it's just like there's nothing. This is it. Yeah. The, and this, this is this is the bleakest of, of, of uh, on an album full of kind of bleak songs. This is this is the, the very bottom. But we get. The, he doesn't let the album end there. This could be the end of the album. This would be a pretty nihilistic album if, if this is where Bruce decided to end it. But he doesn't end it there. He co- he puts a coda at the end, which is yeah. Valentine's Day. Even a- after all of this, even after the all the way up and all the way back down, uh, like the, the character, the, the the narrative arc of this whole thing, Bruce ends with some sort of hopeful note, which which is may- maybe maybe the end is not the end. Maybe alone isn't the way the, the narrative ends. Maybe we still always have hope for some sort of reconnection. And, and I think this is sort of him foreshadowing 
towards his relationship with Patty. I, I think, and I don't know if he's consciously doing that or not. I think probably not, but just the notion of like, yeah, this marriage I'm in right now, it's not going to work, but I'm not giving up on the idea of love. I'm not getting, giving up on the idea of companionship. I just don't think this is it for me, you know? Yeah. So, and it wasn't because Bruce and, and Patty will divorce in 19, or, and Julianne will divorce in 1988. He and Patty will get married a couple of years later and then they're going to have three kids and they're still together today. And following Patty on Instagram is one of the great joys of my life because she posts like fun photos of them just like living their lives. So um, I, I'm sad that it took this much pain for them to get there, but I'm so glad that they did because I think Bruce and Patty are like, I think it's one of the great like rock and roll love stories. And I'm so glad that they found each other. Yeah. And I think this song is sort of the foreshadowing of that. Anyway, go ahead. Each other's lonely Valentines. Yeah. Yeah. Hold me close, honey. Very much so. Yeah. This is a nice, it's like still kind of sad. He says lonely Valentine, but it's like, it's hopefully sad. Yeah. And I think also, and we talked a little bit about the, the E Street Bandness of it all, but I, I think not only is this album about the disillusion of his marriage, it's also probably in his mind or subconsciously about the disillusion or the upcoming disillusion of the E Street Band. Because when he starts making the album, he's married, and the E Street Band is still the E Street Band. And um, a year later, neither of those things is true. Yeah, he's married, and not only is he thinking about, is he basically disbanding the E Street Band, but they're all kind of mad at him. <laughs> yeah, it's it's not, I mean, I guess it's as amicable as it can be, because he, he, he keeps Roy Bitten around, and he stays in touch with some of them. And, and it sounds like Nils uh, Lofgren had a pretty positive outlook on it because he had just joined, recently joined the E Street Band. But even on the tour, uh, like they, they talk about how like, it was just weird. It, it, it was not it was not a fun tour for a lot of those guys, I think. And, and because Bruce like sort of reprogrammed how the show went, they they took a lot of the staples out. They kind of I don't know I don't know if they alienated their fans, but they certainly didn't like reward longtime fans by playing the hits. They like Bruce really resisted. But I mean, and again, we talked about this last week, but the idea of um, all the stuff that makes uh, the live box set kind of special and exciting, he kind of does away with a lot of that stuff on this tour. Yeah. You know, so. Yeah. Um, also, by the way, on this album, not a single note from Clarence on saxophones. Clarence sings background vocals a couple of times, but you, there's not a single saxophone sound anywhere on this album. Which yeah, he replaces it with harmonica a little bit, but it's also just sort of like missing. Yeah. And and that should have been a big signal, probably. Like this is the first time Bruce has no saxophone since Nebraska. But I mean, like in that that was a unique situation. But you know, being a guy who shared an album cover with his saxophone player a decade earlier, now the saxophone is fully absent from this record. That 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 should have been a signal to a lot of these guys. Like this is this is gonna end not well, you know. Like and and it doesn't take long for Bruce to like start calling these guys individually after the tour is over to say like we're we're gonna be done, you know. And so, yeah, so th- th- it's a bittersweet album. And, and I think now as an artifact of sort of Bruce's like stage in life, I, I like this album a lot. I'm, I and we talked, I mean, obviously we just talked about why, but um, but it does make me sad for the E Street Band. The, I, I think people were hurt in the midst of this album and you can't just sort of ignore that, you know? Mm hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So um, anyway, I think that's that's all I've got on Tunnel of Love. You, do you have other like sort of lingering thoughts on on this? Not really. I'm, you know, I got most of it out of the way in the actual episodes, but it's definitely one that grows on me over time more. It's just, it's just as sad as it is. It's really sweet. It's really, um, uh, earnest. Yeah. It, it is very earnest. And it's, and, and we talked about this before, but it's, it's a life stage album. It's, it's an, mm-hmm. I, I don't know that. And I mean, I don't want to write off everybody completely in, in certain age demographics. I just, but if, if I'm like 18 
or in my like early 20s and I'm listening to Bruce Springsteen, this is probably not the thing I, I attach myself to initially. You know what I mean? Like, um, I mean, maybe a couple of the songs, but I think as an album, as a whole, this is something that sort of ages pretty well. Like, it, it tends to be one of those things, like, the older you get, the more you sort of see, like, yeah, re- re- relationships do kind of work this way a lot of the time. And, you know, and a lot of times people get hurt and... And sometimes it's our fault and sometimes we're the ones that get hurt. And that's sort of the nature of being a human being who like is in interaction with people. And, and we're, we're at like, we're recording this in a time where people are disconnected in lots of like physical, tangible ways. And, and I think this album is kind of prescient for that because like, what does it mean to connect with people in a time where we very naturally feel alienated? And I think this, this album really gets at that, you know? Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, I, I think it's a special album. I'm glad it exists. I'm glad everybody who survived through this time got through it uh, in one way or another. And it, se- it seems like everybody kind of had a relatively happy ending. Um, but but yeah, it, it, it does make me sad for uh, the E Street Band, you know, because I, kn- I know that this was this was not an easy time for them. And so um, so I'm, I'm I'm sad that this is sort of an artifact of that. But I'm I'm glad that Bruce decided to bear his soul in this way. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, before we go, I've got a nickname. Yes. Um, for Thomas Hellreigel, I think is how you say his name. I could be wrong, though. He's from Germany. Uh, thanks for being a patron and supporting the pod. And sorry it took so long to do this. Um, but it was nice chatting with you on on the uh, patron chat. So uh, here we go. He, uh, it's just not, Iceman is not his favorite song, but he likes it. And he said that I should do a nickname that's a, a deep cut instead of uh, stealing some, some <laughs> melody lines from, from a popular song. So I did Iceman. Cool. Uh, so in Hamburg town where the Beatles were just bummers, baby Thomas, baby Thomas the Teach, he's a ska drummer and a 90s apologist. He wants just wants to hold down the beat. He don't want no piece of that sublime world. He'll roll a snare drum like the specials rolled. He's beating on those drums and his blood is running hot. Thomas the Teach, he's a ska drummer. Thomas, thanks for supporting the show uh, and thanks for the challenge. That was fun. Very nice. I, so he's from Hamburg, huh? Yeah. Nice. Nice, yeah, and I like your Beatles reference in there. That was special. That's cool. Yeah, well, he he also put it in his our message, so that was good. Oh, nice. Well, Thomas, thanks for uh, supporting the podcast in these very odd times. Uh, we uh, yeah. we do appreciate the support. So uh, speaking of yeah, don't who, stop reaching out. It's been uh, been nice chatting with you. Yeah, well, and speaking of people who support the podcast, uh, we're about to log off here, but we're going to jump on and uh, do a bonus episode. We're going to talk about our top five albums from the 1980s. So if you're a patron and uh, you're connected to that feed then you can you can go hear that and if you're not a patron you know thanks thanks for listening thanks for being part of this part of the conversation and uh jb thanks for hanging out and talking about tunnel of love absolutely all right well we will see everybody next time uh we're we'll probably be off next week because sorry sorry we're sort of sporadic on the release but we we had already planned to take a week off uh between every decade so this is the the end of the 80s for bruce springsteen so we'll be back in two weeks to talk about human touch so everybody gets super excited for everyone's favorite album. And uh, we'll, we'll be back in two weeks to enter into the 90s with Human Touch. And uh, until then, you can catch us over on the Patreon feed where we're going to talk about our top five albums from the 1980s. Everyone, have a great week. Stay safe, stay healthy, and we'll see you next time.